And if you're online, I'm so thankful you're joining us today. Um, one of the things I like to say is church is here, there, and everywhere, and uh, who knows where people are right now, but I, I'm excited to be in this gospel. We left off last Sunday with the idea that Satan is going to do everything he can to either get Jesus to fail or to get one of his disciples to fail. And that's kind of where we, we hung things up last week, and, and it's so true, and I find it really fascinating because it's still his same scheme. He still does the same thing. And so we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. This is what it says. It says, now, after John was arrested, and I feel like we have to stop right there, all right? Because John is arrested, and I'm thinking, what just happened? Like, what just happened? We go from John baptizing people in the wilderness calling people to repent and to baptism, to believe in the one who's to come. And the next thing we know in Mark's gospel, he's arrested. He's in jail. And what's interesting is Mark doesn't give us these details until Mark chapter 6. So if you really want to know what was going on with John the Baptist, you actually have to go over and start reading the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, to get more of the detail as to what was happening. So John, he's baptizing people in one minute, and the next minute he's locked up in prison. And we shouldn't be surprised, though, because John's message in the wilderness was repent, be baptized, repent, and be baptized. How does a message of repentance usually settle with us? When somebody tells you that you're wrong and that you need to turn from those ways to these other ways, how do we usually receive that? Now imagine that you might be King Herod. You might be Herod, who is the king and, and the ruler of the region in the area, and he's hearing this message of repentance. How is that going to go? And so John is calling people to repentance, and I can only imagine, I can only imagine that honestly, Herod didn't like this much. And so what's Mark's point here? What is he trying to tell us? He's trying to say, John's out. John's out. Where John's ministry ends, Jesus' ministry actually begins. That's the literary form here that he's using. He's saying Jesus' ministry is ending, and and John, or sorry, John's ministry is ending, and Jesus' ministry is beginning. And John's ministry never actually ends then, is is the good news here. It never really quite finishes, which is good because Jesus' ministry flows out of John's ministry. And in this situation, if you're following a leader and the leader gets put in jail, one of three things is going to happen. One, you're going to go back to your old life and you're just going to stop. Like the movement's just going to end. We actually see this with Jesus' disciples. Do you remember Peter, James, Andrew, and John? When Jesus is crucified, what happens? They just go back to their lives. And so you either do that, you go back to what you used to do, or the second thing is you create a coup and you go and demand the freedom of your leader. Or the third option, which is probably and most likely what I think happens here, is somebody emerges and takes on the leadership realm, and guess what happens? Jesus just takes on John's ministry. And they move on. Look at this. Verse 14 again. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. And we got to stop right there because Galilee is an important word. You can even underline this. You can even mark it up in your Bible, whatever you got to do there. But Jesus goes to Galilee. And if you know anything about Jerusalem or Israel, the country of Israel, then the Judean ministry that we often read about was in the southern portion. And the Galilean ministry was... What's up on your map from south? 
north, right? So Galilee is the northern region. And so you have the Judean southern region, you have the Galilean northern region, and this is where Jesus goes. And where John the Baptist hung out most of his time was in the southern Judean area of Israel. And and so this is the deal. He's going north. He's going to spread his message and communicate and extend his mission and build his kingdom north of Jerusalem, which is really interesting here because guess who's in the northern region? King Herod. And guess where Jesus establishes his home base? Eight miles from the palace where King Herod lives. So King Jesus is going to establish the home base for his kingdom movement. Where? In the exact same region in proximity to the area where a king is already ruling in that region. And side note here, this is his home territory. This is the northern region. This is why people said nothing good can come from Nazareth because it's up north. It's away from everything down south. And so this is an interesting situation in that we actually also know that Jesus' dad, Joseph, was a builder, a carpenter. He was a stonemason of some sort, likely worked with his dad in that region to actually build whose palace? King Herod's. And so Jesus Jesus is fighting Satan in the wilderness. And where does he go? He goes home to establish his kingdom in the northern region, in Galilee. And this is so interesting for us to wrap our head around because it's big. Jesus is launching his ministry in the area where one is already claiming to be king. Herod's capital city is right down the road from where Jesus is right now. I think that's cool. Glad you do too. Verse 14 again says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came where? To Galilee, proclaiming what? The gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? And I think that these couple of verses are fascinating bookends for us in the gospel of Mark. Because verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now in verse 14 and 15, what do we see Jesus doing? He's actually fulfilling. He's actually going in and he's saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so repent and believe in the gospel. And I think these are interesting because we get the word gospel in verse 1, and then we get the word gospel two times in verse 14 and 15. Doesn't Jesus sound a lot like John the Baptist? Like, doesn't he sound, telling people to repent and to believe. See, Jesus is creating a kingdom that is a political affront to all the other kingdoms that are already reigning in the region. And so Jesus' message is clear. He is calling people everywhere to believe and to repentance because he's establishing a kingdom. This is why he's here, because Jesus is here to establish a kingdom. Not just a kingdom, his kingdom. And yet... Jesus is still messing with their concept of what a kingdom should be like. And he continues to mess with our concept of what a kingdom should be like. Because because he's not doing it the way that really he should do it. This is the problem that we run into when we begin to make a Jesus that will fit my desires. We begin to construct a Jesus who will make my life more comfortable. When we have a Jesus who should think like I do and live like I do and be like I am, 
this is the problem because then we have to deconstruct that to really see who Jesus really is. And so if Jesus is going to establish a kingdom, guess what he has to do? He has to build an army because, see, if he's going to fight the kingdoms on earth, then he's going to need generals for his army. He's going to need army people who are going to go and engage in this fight with us. And so what we read next is really fascinating because it's the beginning of his recruitment of four generals. Here it is, verse 16. It says this, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. I love, I love Mark's additional description here. As if we don't know why they wouldn't be casting a net to the sea, right? Why would you cast a net to the sea? Anybody know? To catch fish. And so just to be sure, Mark says, for they were fishermen. That's why they're casting the net over the boat, okay? Because they are fishermen. Now here's what's interesting. If you have your Bibles, if you have your Bible app, whatever, underline the word Sea of Galilee. And the reason I'm telling you to underline that is because the Sea of Galilee actually is going to occur multiple times in the Gospel of Mark. And, and this is one of his themes. It's a place of importance in the ministry of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was going to the Sea of Galilee after the temptation of Satan in the wilderness is theologically explosive. And let me explain why. Here's why. Because from a Jewish perspective, Seas were dangerous. Seas were a place of evil. Seas were a place of chaos. Seas were unpredictable. Most of the time when we hear about the Sea of Galilee, they are in the middle of a storm because seas are dangerous. They're evil. They're chaotic. They're unpredictable. They're dark. They're gloomy. As a matter of fact, even in Scripture, in Revelation chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7, we get these four beasts that come out of the sea and wreak havoc on the kingdoms, right? So from a Jewish perspective, the sea is dangerous, it's, it's evil, it's cha- <coughs> excuse me, chaotic. It, it, it's, it's not supposed to be. And so after Jesus conquers Satan, his first major victory is at the Sea of Galilee where he calls four soldiers or his first generals out of the chaos, out of the evil, out of the unpredictable to follow him. And we don't have time to dig in this today, but Jesus is doing it all wrong. Everything that you would do to build a kingdom... He's doing it backwards and he's doing it wrong. If he were really the Jewish Messiah, if he was the anointed one, if he was the chosen one, if he was the holy son of God, then he would have gone down to Jerusalem, the epicenter of their faith, where they practice all of the traditions of the Jewish religion of Judaism. He would have gone there and he would have, he would have been practicing those because the people from the south looked at the people from the north and they said, oh, they're lesser Jews than we are. I mean, you have the Greco-Roman uh, temples and, 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 and synagogues, and guess what? There they are. They are they're worshiping, and, and they're saying, well, you're mixed together, and you're worshiping this mixed together, and, and your faith isn't as authentic as ours. And by the way, you don't have the temple. Oh, and by the way, you don't have the feast. And oh, by the way, you don't have the, the, the festivals and the tabernacles and, and all of these things. And so you can't, you can't possibly be as good a Jew as I am from the South. And what happens? What happens? 
Jesus calls four of his disciples, the first four of his disciples, the generals for his army, out of the sea. And for the first time, this is beautiful. Don't miss this moment. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful moment because for the first time in Mark's Gospels, we've got the words of Jesus. And this is what happens. Listen, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, here it is, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Look what happens. And immediately, there it is, there's one of his key words, 42 times in his gospel. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets, preparing to fish and immediately Jesus called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed. Now we often talk about this but this is what's interesting. We have two accounts of a calling right here and where Jesus invites two sets of people to follow him and Mark uses both of these to play off each other. Because the call given to Peter and Andrew is also the same call that's given to James and John. And the reaction is the same. The reaction is immediately they left what they were doing and they followed. Because, because come follow me is an invitation to be all in. Now hear that. Come follow me is an invitation by Jesus saying, I want you all in. Because when it comes to discipleship, there is no middle ground. There is no kind of, there is no I sort of follow. You either follow or you don't. And the literal meaning here, if you dig into the Greek, is absolutely, Jesus says, absolutely, without a doubt, without a shadow of doubt, you come and you follow me. Abandon all else. And so what's happening here is nothing short of a miracle. And the reason I say that is because the Middle Eastern society is based on honor and shame. Now let me compare this. Because our society is based on time and money, right? The more successful you are, the more dignified you are, the more money you have, right? And as a matter of fact, the more important you are and the more dignified you are, then you don't have very much time, right? And we honor that. We actually actually look up to the person who says, oh, I'm too busy, I don't have time for that. Oh, must be nice being important right we honor that we honor the people who have money we their dignity they're dignified they, they they're they're successful right they have life real life but not so in the middle eastern culture they live for honor and shame honor is what gives them dignity honor is what gives them success well, honor is what gives them life and so this is actually what makes wars with the middle east so complicated if you really dig down into it Because the things that we care about, guess what? They don't care about. A business owner might actually leave his whole business to go defend his honor. Whereas we would never, you say what you want to about me, look at me, I've got this, I'm successful. Do you see what the tension is here? And so all of a sudden as we dig into this, Andrew and Peter, they're leaving their family business. It's interesting because we don't have Andrew and Peter's dad there. But we do with James and John. And and what does it say? They left Zebedee, their father, in the boat. You can almost hear him saying, hey boys, what about our 
company? What about our job? What about our business? What about our income? What about our honor? And then if you don't have Peter and Andrew, their parents aren't there, then we have to assume that either dad is away from the business, he's ill, or maybe worse, he's actually dead. And so leaving their livelihood, leaving their job, leaving their occupation, leaving where they get their income would have brought shame to the family, which would have been dishonorable. And so James and John are with Zebedee, and you can see how it plays out. And just like just like our call is to leave what defines us as successful, just like our call is to leave what gives us dignity in life, Jesus says to us, absolutely, come follow me. And what Jesus does in Mark's gospel, the disciples have this high level of importance. In chapter 1, he begins to call. By chapter 3, all the disciples are gathered. By chapter 6, he's sending them out on mission. And so Jesus' call is an incredibly powerful, powerful thing. Jesus' disciples, they play a significant role in the identity and in the mission of Jesus and his kingdom. And listen, listen, as disciples... We play a significant role in the identity and in the mission of Jesus. Who you are and what you do with your life as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus is critically important. And so when Jesus calls Andrew and he calls Peter and he calls James and he calls John, their lives are totally changed and In this moment, the history of the world is changed. It's completely different. And what we're reading right here in this chapter changed the world. It changed the world, making Jesus' call that incredibly powerful thing. And whether we can articulate it or not, a call from Jesus makes it difficult to follow Him. Jesus' call is a powerful thing. And honestly, we have to grasp it as much as we can. And I think there's some lessons that we can take away. And I don't want you to miss these because these are the things that should define us as well. Does that make sense? And so here it is. The call to follow Jesus is different. It is different than anything else you'll ever experience. It's different. And the reason I say that, it's different because it's the good news. It's the gospel. It is the repent and believe the good news. The word gospel means that it's history-making, life-shaping, life-transforming, life-changing news. And, And the word for gospel here is a Greek word that actually was used a lot. It was a common word. The gospel would be, you know, you just gave birth to your child and the dad runs into the waiting room and says, He's here! That's the good news. That's the gospel, right? It's, for instance, after many of our modern-day wars, there's some sort of celebration that says, hey, it's finished, we're done, and that would be the gospel. In the olden days, when Paul Revere rode through on the horse, guess what? He was proclaiming good news, right? Like, here, we're, we're, we're doing this. And so this is what's happening where gospel is talking about this history-making, life-changing, life-transforming, history-changing news. No other religion in the world does this. Other religions, or no religion at all, says this, that you will give you good advice. 
Or, or, you know what, if you accomplish this and you do this and you, you do these things and you live this kind of way, then you can be saved. But the good news and the gospel of Jesus is that what has been done, what has been done in history, what has been accomplished in history, what has been completed in history has been done for you. You understand that this is the life Jesus lived and this is the life Jesus died for you that you may be saved. This is the good news and the gospel accepts us not on the basis of our past. The gospel does not accept us on the basis of our past. It accepts us on the basis of Jesus's past. That's the gospel not on the basis of what I've done, not on the basis of what I've performed, but on what He has accomplished in history for me. This is what makes the call to follow Jesus entirely different than anything else you will ever experience. And another reason it's so different and completely different is because we know, or at least we should know this. If you don't, you can write home about this one. And that's this. Nothing makes us more miserable as human beings than self-absorption. What do I mean by that? Being obsessed with myself. Being obsessed with me. Being self-centered and self-focused. Walking around asking the type of questions like this. How am I feeling? Or, or, or how are people treating me? Or how am I doing? Or am I proving myself? Or am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I being treated justly? These aren't bad questions in of themselves, but what will make you the most miserable person on the, self, on the face of this planet is being self-centered. Being self-absorbed, right? There's nothing more miserable than self-centeredness. There's nothing that kills community more than thinking of myself. This is why we have wars and fights and family breakdowns and struggles because I look at life through the lens of me. And so when we decide to be our own king, everything falls apart. When we live life self-centered and selfish, everything falls apart. When we live through the lens of me, everything breaks down. The kingdom of the gospel, the good news is that I don't have to be king. I shouldn't be king because Jesus is king. And the first time he came back, he came back in weakness to die for us. But when he returns, he will come back again with strength. And when we come, we follow Jesus and we submit to his kingship and everything else will begin to heal. It just does. So the call to follow Jesus is different, but the call to follow Jesus is also very extreme. Very very extreme. When Jesus says to Peter and Andrew and James and John, come follow me, at once, immediately they followed him. What we have to understand is that Jesus is saying, listen, I now have priority over your career. I now have priority over your family. I now have priority over your future. I now have priority over your finances, over your possessions. And guess what? This is extreme. He says, I want priority over it all. 
It's extreme. Jesus is saying, resembling me and pleasing me and serving me and knowing me must all come supreme passion to anything else. Everything else is less important than that. Everything. This is extreme. The call to follow Jesus is very extreme. We live in a moderation society. We love moderation. Well, can't I just think a little bit about that? Or can I have a little bit of this and a little bit of that too? Or why do you force me to choose? Why can't I just live here in the middle? And let me tell you, as a recovering people pleaser, I love moderation. Like, can't we just all be together and happy and sing songs and dance? And like, can't we just? No, Jesus is not a God of moderation. We love to live in the middle. And we will justify nearly everything by saying, well, can't I just live in the middle or have a little and do a little? I mean, the problem is Jesus never said, hey, do all things in moderation. It's not there. You can't find it. It's not there where he says, well, just do a little. It's okay. You can have a little bit of fun that way. No harm. Right? And so we think that. But then I read Luke chapter 14 where Jesus says to people who say to him, hey, I want to follow you. He says, "Um, unless you hate your mother and father and your brothers and sisters, and actually unless you hate your whole life, you can't be my disciple." Yeah, because he says, let's do things in moderation, right? But he doesn't. He says, you cannot be my disciple. That's not moderate language. Jesus wants us to follow him so completely and so fully and so intensely and so comprehensively, so supremely and so emotionally and so consistently and so enduringly that the attachments that are attached to me in this life are actually meaningless. This is the extreme language. Why? Jesus will not be used. Jesus will not be a means to an end. Jesus is the end. And He wants us to know He's the end. He will not be. We follow to fulfill His goal. We follow Him to fulfill His mission. We follow Him to make His identity and His character known to the world. He is not interested, and hear me, hear me, He is not interested in making us happy and comfortable. And so when we construct our little Jesus the way we want Him to be so that my life is happier or that my life is more comfortable or that I can be more successful in life, we have missed the call of discipleship. We've missed it. Because He's not here to make us happy. He's not here to make us even a better person or more successful. He wants us to make Him known in the world that is lost. He wants His character to be made known and His mission to be fulfilled. That's why He came. And so His call to follow is different. And His call to follow is extreme, but His call to follow is also a journey. This is the beautiful news. Following Jesus is a process. It's a process. We are unfinished people. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are unfinished. God is not done with you yet. We are always developing. And Jesus' ministry is on the move. It's a movement. And so it's not standing still. It's not stale. It's moving. And so the invitation, the call to join Jesus is to go with Him on the way to completion. This journey. Remember the sea? I said it would come up, it's going to come up again today. The sea, the Sea of Galilee, the place where this water was. It was a place of chaos and death. 
a place of darkness and coldness. You know what the sea represents? The sea represents our world. A place of darkness, a place of coldness, a place of chaos, a place of death, a place where evil exists and the kingdom of evil reigns. And so right here, maybe representing even selfishness and self-centeredness and self-kingship, the sea represents everything that is wrong with the world. And Jesus comes by the sea. And He calls four guys. And He says, come and follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's saying this, that I'll make you someone who goes into the darkness and calls people out of the darkness and into the light. Come out of the darkness and follow Me so that then you can be fishers of men who are stuck in the chaos and in the evil and in the darkness and in the coldness of our world and I'm going to make you light, bright light so that people will be drawn out of the darkness, out of the coldness, out of the evil, out of the chaos into the light. Jesus is saying we're on our way, we're on our way, follow me, I'm on my way. They had no idea where Jesus was going. They had no idea. Within a few months, actually, they're going to start running for their lives because there's going to be a death notice for Jesus. They're going to be failing. They're going to be betraying. And that was the way Jesus was going to be turning them into fishers of men. When we follow Jesus, we actually have no idea where He might be taking us. We have no idea how far He might be taking us. We have no idea what we are going to go through to become someone who is starting to be broken from our self-absorbed, selfish, our self-centered life to actually become disciples who make Jesus known to the world, who begin to draw people out of the darkness into His marvelous light. Do you understand that following Jesus is different, it is extreme, and it is a journey, but here it is, it might feel impossible. But the call to follow Jesus is possible. Absolutely it's possible. Jesus wants to take all of us on a journey. Those of us who are here right now, right here in this room, those of us who are online, those of us who are outside of the room, Jesus' heart is actually that He wants to take every human being on a journey. He wants to make Himself number one in all of our lives. He wants us to trust Him with everything. That's who He is. He wants us to stick with Him, not to grow weary, not to give up. No matter what, He wants us to be with Him and stick with Him. He doesn't want us to give up. He promises, to, he promises us. That He will be with us in the crummy stuff and in the hard stuff and in the sickness and in the darkness. He will be with us through all that crummy stuff that's going to happen in our lives. Jesus' vision for our lives is to turn us into fishers of men, to heal the pride, to heal the self-centeredness and the selfishness in our lives that's ruining our lives. The journey Jesus takes us on will not be like the world The journey I'm on in this world, I run into dead end after dead end after dead end after dead end. 
But the journey Jesus has me on, he's saying, listen, that we will be dead as long as we refuse to die to ourselves. This is hard. And it's dangerous. Following Jesus is hard. It's dangerous. Maybe this is why, maybe this is why Mark does this incredible thing where he attaches John the Baptist being arrested to the call of his first disciples. Because there was no promise that this life in following Jesus was going to be easy. And if we really deny ourselves, we deny our self-kingship and we deny our self-centeredness and our selfishness, if we actually deny those things in us and we make Jesus king and we submit to him, and maybe you're asking this question, how do we do it? How do we do it, man, when I'm done studying and I sit here and I go, how do I do it? And this is what I want you to know. We have to see Jesus absolutely doing something here that he was actually willing to do himself. Does that make sense? How is the call of, to follow Jesus possible? It's possible. Because everything that Jesus is asking us to do that we're going to learn in the Gospel of Mark, everything that Jesus is going to ask his followers to do, when we actually see Jesus calling Andrew and Peter and James and John, guess what? He did so after Jesus himself left the throne. He came down. He removed himself from his place of power and prestige at the right hand of God, the one who was there when the world was spoken into existence. Left his place in the throne room of God. And he came to earth And he took up a cross. And so when Jesus says, absolutely follow me, and what that entails by, by surrendering so much to make him King Jesus of my life, he's already done. Listen to this from Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Paul says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul says this, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then here's the, here's the lesson. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here. Who though he was in the form God, he did not count equality with God a thing that could be grasped. Here it is. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So how do I know following Jesus is possible? Because the very thing Jesus asked me to do and the very thing Jesus asked you to do, He's already done. That should move us. It should motivate us. It should make us willing to abandon. And if you're sitting here thinking about yourself right now, you have missed the point. 
The call to follow is extreme. It is different. It is a journey. And if you don't look more like Jesus right now than you did a year ago, there is something wrong with who you are following. Maybe you're looking too much to yourself. Maybe you're trying to construct a Jesus who will fit your needs and do what you want Him to do and make your life the way you want it to be. And if you're doing that, Jesus refuses to be a means to an end. He refuses to be used. And so I can't imagine when we think about this call being different and extreme, a journey and possible. I can't think of a better time to stop and think about Jesus and let His death on the cross be the motivator for my life.